Chat Podcast, bringing the best of the HR and talent communities to you. Hi, everyone. It's Matt here for this episode of the HR Chat Show. I'm again sitting in for Bill. And this week, we're chatting with Enrique Rubio. Enrique is the founder of Hacking HR, a Washington, D.C.-based global community of HR, business, and technology leaders discussing the intersection of the future of work, technology, HR, and business. Enrique, welcome to the HR Chat Show. Hey, hello, Matt. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, I'm happy to be here to talk about HR, future of work, technology, and community networking and everything else we want to talk about. I'm looking forward to it, my friend. I know you're a big advocate of community. So why don't you tell me a bit about your experience with community? Absolutely. You know, I, the, the way I see the future of work is, you know, from the perspective of being very complex, right? And I think the challenges that we're going to be dealing with in the future are so complex, so chaotic, so volatile. You know, it's kind of the VUCA world reloaded. And it's going to be impossible for any single individual, HR function, company, industry, and even countries to solve these kind of challenges. Let me give you some examples of that. Last year, McKinsey released a research saying that anywhere between 375 and 800 million jobs were gonna be replaced by automation over the next 12 years. So we're talking about a third of the global workforce being replaced by automation. Of course, another research said that by the year 2030, about 85% of the new jobs created uh, don't exist today in 2019. But what happens during the transition? What happens with you know, anywhere between 375 and 800 million people uh, uh, losing their jobs because of technology? These problems are so gigantic, so complex, that it can, they can be resolved just from a, from a one country perspective or from, not even from a one region perspective. We've got to get together put our heads together, learn from each other, collaborate with each other, create community to solve these very complex problems. People are going to be migrating to the African continent. People from the African continent will be migrating maybe to the European continent. People from the United States maybe, you know, traveling down south or north. So, so all these things that are happening around the world uh, because of technology you know, are creating pressures that, once again, we can't solve alone. So I am driven by, by this passion of building community. I see myself as a, as a, as a builder, right, of, of bridges, as a, as a bridge builder, at connecting people around the world for them to be able to get together, collaborate, network, learn, you know, uh, work on different projects and whatnot. And I hope people that are listening to this podcast see the value of being part of, uh, of any community, whether it is the Hacking Nature community or any other community, because this is going to become a, 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 you know, a competitive edge for any group in the world trying to solve complex you know, human or organizational problems. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, Enrique. I mean, I think it comes down to the fact that you just hit on the, a couple of really key points. The first one is that problems now are so much more global and complex in nature. Mm -hmm. It's just not possible to have the deep level of technical expertise required to have, sat have satisfaction and to be able to solve problems at that scale anymore. We need a combination of technology and people and different points of view around things. And one thing I've been talking about lately a lot is the, the blending of the qualitative and the quantitative. And as we, as a, as a society, start to rely more heavily on things like data to inform our decisions, yeah. there's still going to always be that need to bring judgment and empathy and emotional intelligence into the conversation. So I'd love to hear your thoughts around that, blending the two. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And, um, you know, just last night I was, uh, I was speaking with some, some colleagues and, you know, technology didn't work. And, you know, we made it work, right? And what I said was, well, you know, if we humans didn't have the capacity to solve these things, sometimes real time and sometimes sort of forecasting, you know, potential problems, but, but if we didn't have that capacity, technology alone won't be able to solve them, right? So we still need to have, you know, this capacity to, to solve complex problems, to be creative, to use our imaginations, of course, to use empathy, because as, uh, as you said before, the, 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 the problems that we are dealing with not only are complex, but are global, and we will require more capacity to understand other cultures, the way other people work, you know, to be, a, to be, be better equipped, perhaps to coordinate, collaborate with others. And these are uniquely and sort of innately human abilities. So those things won't be replaced by technology, at, at least not in the foreseeable future. So, um, and if you look around, you know, most of the, uh, of the institutions researching the skills that are going to be needed for the future of work, you know, the World Economic Forum, the Institute for the Future, McKinsey, Deloitte, all of them agree that the way to remain relevant uh, won't necessarily be knowing more about technology, but knowing more about you know, how to be a better human, right? Like you said before, empathy, uh, you know, uh, collaboration, decision-making, complex problem-solving, critical uh, thinking, critical judgment, all those things that cannot be necessarily uh, relied upon just technology. So uh, I see, you know, this global community getting together from a, from a human point of view, using technology to solve the problems, but being human, you know, feeling the empathy that comes uh, or that is needed to understand that the situation in one given region may be positive one day when other regions are having, you know, difficulties and it could be the other way around over the years. So to understand that, we need this global community that I talked about and the skills that you talked about too. So Enrique, you referenced a study, and I think we've all heard of or seen studies around the future of work in the context of future job loss. And there's one side of the ledger that says over the course of the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, we're going to see hundreds of millions of jobs be, become obsolete. And on the other end of the ledger, you're seeing um, a, a conversation around hundreds of millions of jobs that are going to be created as the economy shifts and ebbs and flows. Yeah. One thing I don't hear talked a lot about, though, we hear about kind of the fear mongering around jobs being automated. And we hear some conversations around this, you know, potential new jobs in the career. Who do you think owns the reskilling of the current workforce? Is it the companies who employ people right now or the individuals in the roles themselves? Wow, that is a powerful question, my friend. <laughs> that is one question that I have struggled with, uh, you know, thinking about. And I have talked about this with many, many other people. I think it's a combination of both. And, uh, you know, on the one hand, if companies want to remain relevant as companies, they will need to invest in their people and reskilling them for the future. One example of those, uh, of the kind of company that is doing that is Amazon. Amazon last year released an initiative or strategy to start skilling some of their people into, in, in the kind of skills that they don't need today, but they know that they will be needing down the road. So what they are doing is they are sort of predicting the kind of shifts that their company, that the company Amazon will be, will be, will be doing, and they are preparing their people to sort of to be ready for that. So I think there's a lot from the company side because it's not just, you know, saying, well, you know, we have Matt today and Matt doesn't know about how to do this. So let's fire Matt and let's hire someone else. So, because that's going to be very costly for any company. So for them, 
it's a matter of survival to say, well, Matt doesn't know about these skills, but we are interested in Matt knowing about them, even though they are not related to his function today. So we are going to be providing the opportunities for Matt to learn about these things. So that's one, that's one perhaps one angle. The other angle is on the individual, um, sort of the individual driven learning. I, I feel that if people are not taking in their hands the, the sort of the responsibility to learn, they, you know, we will suffer if we don't do that. And that's been reality throughout our history, you know, when you know, people who decided not to learn new skills and they were, you know, basically they became professionally obsolete and they were replaced by those who decided to learn. I have a very interesting story of this guy who, you know, uh, uh, many, many years ago when the emails were being introduced, this guy used to write everything in a typewriter. So the guy didn't know how to use emails. He didn't feel comfortable writing emails. So he hired an assistant to write emails for him. So imagine what happened with this guy when emails became ubiquitous instead of the typewriter. So this guy basically became professionally obsolete. Same thing will happen to those who, you know, who decide uh, not to learn the new things that are needed in this new world of work. So I think it's a combination of the two things. I myself, uh, you know, I'm very optimistic about companies doing this. I'm very optimistic about you know, the future of work, but I'm also very realistic. So I myself, I am I'm putting a lot of effort into learning things every day to make sure that I remain relevant as a professional. And so my, you know, my message to the listeners is, you know, don't rely just on the company to invest in your reskilling. You got to do that yourself. And there are one trillion free resources out there from which uh, you can learn. So, you know, it's not that you have to invest a lot of money doing a $50,000 master's degree. You can learn just by going to YouTube and seeing how people are doing different things right now. So I think it's a combination of both. Yeah, I ultimately think you're right. And I think the answer probably is, the short answer is the economy and the economics of the decision will drive the individual circumstances. Yeah. So where, a, where an organization has a financial impetus to reskill their workforce because it makes sense financially to do so, i.e., to your point, the cost of attrition would be seen as too high or the cost to go acquire talent off of, quote unquote, the street might be too high relative to upskilling people in the organization. I think in those cases, the organization will probably take it upon itself to move forward. Yeah. and to reskill their workforce. But in cases yeah. where there is not a financial impetus to do that or a strong business case to do that, I don't see the majority of companies making a strong moral decision and therefore spending tens of millions of dollars to reskill their workforce. And I think to your point is, if I was a worker and I just like you am a work worker in this workforce, I've always taken it upon myself to manage my career like a business. Mm -hmm. And that means developing the skills and requirements and the relationships that are necessary for me to sustain myself during both ebbs and flows in the economy, but also in this context of the future of work, positioning myself to be more successful in a new economy. Um, and I think that is um, incumbent upon all individuals. And I think you're right. I think we, we jump to um, the solution being a you know, 50,000, $100,000, $200,000 master's degree, or we jump to, you know, I have to go back to school in some capacity. And that may be true for some individuals, but the majority of things that we can learn today are really human traits. And those learnings are available on things like YouTube, the Khan Academy, lots of free resources out there that can teach people the skills that they need. Uh, but what I would say for the individual who's thinking about their own future, and maybe they're asking themselves, is my job going to be one of the jobs that is potentially obsolete? I think the first thing I would say to them is, 
if your job is predicated right now on a high degree of technical knowledge that can be automated with machines, the answer probably is that your job will be automated. So yeah. if, you're, if you're an administrative assistant right now and you spend most of your time doing paper-based filing and writing memos yeah. or doing basic data entry, your work is probably going to be automated. Yeah. However, yeah. But even, but even that, Matt, is, is part of the learning process because, you know, it's, it's you know, if, if you're doing a job, then you know all the things that are changing out there. So perhaps the very first thing that you got to do is, well, let me read a little bit about the kind of jobs that may be auto replaced by automation. So, you know, like, well, you know, my job is a, you know, a, a, you know like this guy before, like, you know, I, I work with a typewriter. And typewriters are going out of business and the new thing is computers and emails. So I better learn how to use the computer and better learn how to write emails because typewriters will go out of business. And that, if that's the only thing that I do, I may go out of business as well. So that's part of the, this very first step of, uh, of learning is that kind of research where you understand where you are in terms of where the world is moving to and the things that you need to learn in order to remain relevant. Exactly what you're saying. No, and you're, you're exactly right. And it's, I guess there isn't really a mystery so much in terms of what is going away. There is maybe a bit more of a mystery in terms of what's going to replace it. But studies have time and time shown that what's going to replace it are jobs that are predicated on things that at this point cannot be automated, i.e. Yeah. human relationships, yeah. i.e. leadership, i.e. managing through complex situations that are multivariable and involve a human implication to them. At this yeah. point in time, machines are not taking that work. So if you're in a role that is predicated on those skill sets, then you can be rest assured that maybe parts and portions of your job might change, but ultimately the core competencies of your job will not. And then yeah. to your earlier point, Enrique, it's about how do you find other things to augment your experiences? How do you make yourself more marketable um, as we look at the kind of the future changing of work? And one thing I want to transition to in this conversation is, so we talked a lot about the individual and yeah. the changes to the individual. What do you see happening in terms of the changes in the organization? Well, you know, I, I think that um, the, the, way, the way work is organized today, I don't think it's going to last too much longer because companies, you know, this approach to, um, to you know, having designed, having, you know, using today the, the organizational design that has been in place for 100 years, you know, meaning these hierarchies, this departmental uh, or functional-based kind of work, where you have, you know, as, as I said before, you know, hierarchies and, and, you know, office politics and these kind of things. I don't think that's going to last too long because companies need to be way more flexible and innovative today. Uh, so companies will have to start also thinking about how they redesign themselves in order to be more attuned to a world that moves and changes extremely, extremely fast. And if you think about it, you know, you, you just look at the very, at the most innovative companies in the world, you know, Amazon, Facebook, uh, Twitter, uh, you know, Microsoft, Google, even those companies are dealing with very complex challenges when it comes to their own uh, uh, transformation when it, you know, to, to, to adapt and remain relevant. And that's why you see cases of you know, some very powerful entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs within those, within those companies that don't find the voice to develop the products that they want to develop. You know, WhatsApp is one of the best cases to exemplify this. WhatsApp was, you know, the guy tried to sell this to Facebook. He tried to sell this, and he was a worker of one of those companies. He tried to sell this to Google, and none of them wanted it because they thought, well, you know, this, this is a good idea, but it's not what we wanted to do. And, well, you know, years later, you know, $19 billion for WhatsApp. So these companies will also need to, uh, uh, to transform themselves and their organizational design in order 
to be able to remain flexible to, to this very complex world, but also to the fast-paced changes that we're seeing right now. I, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily advocating for a Sapos kind of a style of you know, holacracy where you know, it's all flat structure, self-organized teams, but I am advocating for a flatter structure where you have less hierarchies, less steps to go up, less steps for information to flow within the organization, and more sort of collaboration across any organization so that information flows as fast as possible, and then you take advantage of that flow of information to make decisions on time, to innovate faster, and to you know even fail faster if, that's, if that was the case. But I think that, uh, and you're seeing it right now, a lot of companies start, start thinking about how they change the way they approach their own work. So it's both uh, the change in the individual in terms of reskilling themselves, and in the case of the company is, how do we make sense of all the things that are happening out there and you know, continue to thrive into, you know, in this very complex world? And to do that, we need to change. We need to be differently organized because the way we are organized today, you know, having dragged this model for 100 years is not working anymore. I mean, yeah. just, think of, just, think of, just think about it. You, you, you are, if you're in a silo in an organization and you find out, let's say you find out a trend that is going to, you know, have an impact, whether positive or negative, in your company. So you are in a silo. And that trend will impact maybe another silo within the company. If you are in a hierarchy, that information will flow up, then will flow laterally from one silo to the other, and then it will flow down in this other silo. How much time will that take? You know, a lot of time. Maybe by the time the information is getting to the second silo, you know, you are already being affected by that trend that you discover in the first place. So how do we make it easier for people to sort of send information across the board within the organization, cross-pollinate within the organization, give people voice to innovate, to be curious, to be critical thinkers, to you know, decide and do better management of these complex scenarios that you were talking about before. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're bang on, Enrique. And I, I would add one more log to the fire, which is I also think in terms of organizational design, what's also going to continue to evolve is this idea of full-time equivalents. So yeah. when I started in the HR practice, it was all about headcount. You manage yeah. resources in terms of 100% of the whole person. Mm-hmm. And there was this <laughs> sense of ownership, right? Like, hey, I, you are dedicated as a salary employee into my organization, which means essentially I own your working hours and you get to work for us. And yeah. that, of course, is, is becoming less and less of a, um, of a accepted, if you will, form of employment for a lot of people who have gone into the gig economy and gone to the freelance world and done consulting. I think we're going to continue to see a migration of people to that world. I don't think it's going to become the, the predominant nature of work in the short term, but certainly you will see more people join kind of that freelance gig economy workforce. Mm-hmm. And I think that is, I would call out two things for the organizations and the people that work in them. The first thing is that from a defensive perspective, you need to be mindful about the fact that you're now having to compete with other organizations and not only just them, but also now people in freelance capacities, because in a lot of cases, you can't compete in a traditional organization with a gig based role. You don't offer the flexibility of the work in terms of where it's located, when it's done. Um, You may not offer the same value proposition in terms of the ability to charge out the work. Um, And it may not be the kind of work that the individual wants to be completing in the context of their own career path, their own development. So, 
as an, as a, as an HR professional in particular, I was always mindful of the fact that I'm no longer competing now with just the, the company down the road, but I'm competing with a whole different alternate form of employment. And how do we create an experience that competes with that? Um, understanding that ultimately people will make the best decisions for themselves. I think that's yeah. point number one. Point number two is that I also think that within the context of organizations, it's a huge opportunity. So I've worked, uh, Enrique, for the biggest companies in the world down to the smallest companies in the world. And what I would tell you is in the big companies in the world, one thing that we had a huge benefit of was, was lots of resources. Yeah. So when I worked for companies like Walmart, we had endless resources in terms of really talented people populating roles in very specialist capacities because we had the volume of work to justify hiring data scientists. We had the, the quantity of work justify hiring scrum masters where some small to medium businesses just don't have the resourcing. However, in the gig economy, you actually do because there's an opportunity for you to go to the market and find really talented resources on a part-time or even like a, a project basis and inc incorporate them into your organization, incorporate them into your strategy. I'll give you an idea, Enrique. One idea I never really got to do before I left the corporate world was I had in my budget for actually this fiscal year was to hire a data scientist for about 20 hours to look at our existing predictive analytics models and just take it to the next level in terms of making sure that all the inputs and the outputs were what we wanted to get and to give us some perspective and some advice on how we could do things better going forward. I could never have afforded that in the traditional world about hiring a full-time data scientist, but I could probably afford 20 hours of somebody's time to help supplement our knowledge. Yeah. We now as practitioners in HR have that flexibility and we should be thinking about how do we augment our existing core workforce with the skills and the knowledge and the abilities that may be available in the market at a reduced price point because we don't need to hire somebody on that full-time equivalent. Would love your thoughts on both of those. Yeah, no, it's uh, absolutely true. And there's a research by Upwork, and this, you know, the, one of the main, um, actually I use it all the time, uh, 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 geek workforce kind of platform that allows you to connect with a lot of people around the world. This research said by the year 2027, more than 50% of the uh, workers or the, the, the American workforce will be freelancing. It doesn't mean that they will be fully freelancers, but they will be freelancing, which is, which is fantastic. But then the other thing, which I think is even more interesting, is that when they started running these surveys, and I can't remember right now what was the first year, when they asked the question, why are you freelancing? People were saying, well, because we need the money. Then the last year that they ran the survey, last year, they asked the same question, and people shifted their perspective of what, why they were freelancing. And they said, well, because we like it. Not only do we need the money, I mean, we're making the money now, but also because we like it. So we are going to see a, a shift into more freelancing because people want to, I think, you know, the, the approach to, to work right now is a little different. People are, you know, people go to work, you know, they take a sabbatical, then they go to, back to another job, they go back to school and, you know, do another master's degree, then they go back to work again, they take another sabbatical. So it's not this approach of go to school, work, and retire. What people do now is they go to school, they work, they retire, they go to school again, they work, they retire again. So it's all this, you know, crazy cycle and people enjoy, you know, these things and they enjoy having the freedom, so to speak, of this, uh, of this kind of approach to work. And that's one thing that will be uh, extremely complex for companies to manage. And one thing, there was a guy, you know, when I started hacking guitar, I invited him to be a speaker of, of one of our events. And he told me, the first thing that he asked me was, why hacking HR? 
And I said, well, you know, I think hacking HR needs to change. You know, we need to add more value. We need to do things differently. And he said, well, I don't think everything in HR needs to be hacked. For example, policy and labor relations. And I said, well, I totally disagree with that because as we transition into the gig workforce, you're gonna have to, you're gonna have, to have a new set of labor relations and compliance and policies to include those that are not going to be working full-time with you, but they are representing your brand. They are part of your company in some capacity. So that one thing, I think it's gonna be extremely critical for companies to sort of embrace and to think about. That's, that's going to be a major organizational redesign because now you have to think, how do I hire, like you said before, how do I hire this guy to work only 20 hours knowing that while that, that person is working, that person represents my brand. So there's gonna be a common understanding of what can be done, what should be done, and all, you know, how I'm paying fairly, and all those kind of things. And, um, you know, in terms of the second, the second uh, idea, you know, I, you know, big companies, small companies will be moving into this. And funnily enough, you know, the, we, had a, we had a speaker at one of our events, and the work that he's doing for, he works, he's a senior director at, at Microsoft, and all the work that he's been doing is, how Microsoft will embrace the idea of the gig workforce. And we're talking about a company of thousands and thousands of employees. So this is not something that is just reserved for smaller companies that don't have the resources to hire full-time people, you know, full-time uh, headcount, so to speak. These are for companies that are thinking, you know, on project uh, on a project basis. You know, this is the project that I have today. I'm going to hire a couple of people. They do the project. Thank you so much. Next project. And this is going to be a reality because more companies are going to be, you know, sort of redesigning themselves to work more based on projects than rather than having people sitting down in an office, you know, all day without necessarily delivering the value from those hours that they are putting in. Enrique, as I expected, this was a fast-paced and <laughs> passionate conversation, my friend. If, yeah. our, if our audience wants to get a hold of you, how do they go about doing that? Just go to my LinkedIn profile, Enrique Rubio. That's the easiest way to find me. Go to hackinghr.io and you will see all the things that we're doing. And like you said before, Matt, well, not today, but you know, when, we, when we spoke before the, 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 the podcast, we condensed a couple of hours of podcast in just 25 minutes because we speak so fast. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I recommend if you're listening to this, play this back at like 80 <laughs> and it's probably a 45-minute podcast in total. Enrique, thank you so much for your time today. Wishing you well in the East Coast of the United States and look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you, brother. Thank you so much. You too. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the HR Chat Podcast brought to you by the HR Gazette.